Rachel, thank you very much for joining us here on AU Manufacturing Conversations. Good to have you on the program. Thank you so much for inviting me. A pleasure. Delighted you could make it and delighted you could take a few minutes out of an afternoon, which is, uh, I'm sure, quite a hectic thing over there where you are. I mean, we're in the middle right now of building out our MVP or our prototype, so it is very exciting. Mm, Lovely. Well, I look forward to learning a little more about that over the course of this conversation. So the first question, as it always is for guests, is how did you get here and what do you make? How did I get here? I started my career randomly. I started in healthcare. I was working on clinical redesign projects for the government. And I had reached a point where I got my long service leave. I wasn't really satisfied. I learned a lot of great aspects working in government in terms of structured processes and policies required for business. But I really wanted to go and work for a startup. And I saw a local role available on the Gold Coast at a company called Magniac Mm. that were building electric motors in aviation, which was very exciting and the startup life that I wanted to go and join. So I ended up joining Magniac and working there for a period of time before they closed down their Australian office. Mm-hmm. And I went into utilizing my healthcare background into artificial intelligence and machine learning, learning about that and eventually working in cybersecurity where I was then approached by David and Aaron to join Dovetail Electric Aviation, which is where I work now in business operations, Asia Pacific region. And we retrofit existing aircraft from combustion Mm-hmm. to electric. So we basically will replace the motor with an electric propulsion system. So that's the motor, the inverter, the cooling system, and a power source, which will be battery or hydrogen. Well, that's a skim over, you know, you're a young person, but it looks like you've done quite a lot in your career. I, I'm particularly interested in MagniX, where, you know, we wrote about them a while ago and had the pleasure of speaking to Rowie just after the Sydney uh, Sydney Seaplanes announcement a couple of years back, I think, and we referred to them as the one that got away because obviously they're an Australian company with Gold Coast origins, as you mentioned, but the mm. company is sadly no longer here, even in just an R&D capacity. But anyway, a time moves on and you can't be too mournful about what might have been. That throat clearing aside, I'd really like to know about your time at MagniX, you know, and presumably a fascination for electric propelled aircraft that you must have developed. Tell me about your time there, please, and some of the exciting work you're involved in. Absolutely. So when I was working at MagniX, Roy Gonzalski, who you spoke to, he was He was the CEO at the time and he's actually, he provided the recommendation to David and Aaron, which linked me to Dovetail Electric Aviation, so it's come full circle, which is quite funny. (laughs) But my time at MagniX, it was exciting. I think the Australian team were all very, very passionate and we were very lucky. We were a close-knit team. I guess you're working under a pressure-filled environment. We would do crazy hours, you know, 16-hour days to achieve what felt like at the time impossible deadlines, but it was incredibly rewarding to achieve those deadlines, such as, you know, making the first e-beaver flight successful Mm. and an e-caravan flight within a year. Those two electric flights, one in Canada and then one in the US, were achieved and it was incredibly rewarding. You would do whatever was required to get the job done and we really did. I would fly to New Zealand to pick up parts 
of a weekend or at any hours of the day and we would all be working very hard to get things done. So it was very, very rewarding. And unfortunately, when COVID struck, they decided to close their Australian office and relocate to the US. Yeah, well, that's unfortunate. But as I said, life goes on and it's like you're still doing what you love and still working in the very exciting field of e-aviation. So it's not so bad, I guess. Uh, Do you know what? It's really exciting to see that electric aviation really is here in Australia because once Magniax relocated to the US, there wasn't much of an opportunity for those highly skilled people that were left here in Australia to continue to work on electric aviation. So it's really excited to be back in this industry. Indeed. It's sort of semi-related. We were fortunate enough to have Richard Parsons of Kite Magnetics on a little while ago, and it's good to see people like that making sure that companies doing worthwhile work in this field in Australia, and I think it offers a lot of hope. Absolutely. Um, We know Richard Parsons quite well, and I listen to his podcast, actually. Ah. Um, Yeah, so we have a good relationship with Richard, and it's amazing to be able to support Australian innovation as well, right? That's our hope in the future. I'd like to hear a little bit more, please. You you mentioned something about being introduced to David Dural and Aaron Shaw earlier. Just tell me a little bit, please, about the origin story of Dovetail. Yeah, absolutely. So David Dural, he is our CEO. He was working, he set up a business called Dante Aeronautical and he was designing an electric aircraft from scratch. And during that process, what he realised was that the technology really isn't there, so it's not viable to provide a sustainable range in terms of flight. So during that process, he pivoted and he started talking to Aaron Shaw, who is the managing director of Sydney Seaplanes, about joining forces together and creating a company called Dovetail Electric Aviation that would look at the retrofit market. So retrofitting existing aircraft and eventually they would look to build brand new electric aircraft. They joined forces, created Dovetail Electric Aviation and then they had an advisor, a couple of different advisors. One of those advisors was the ex-CEO of Magniex, mm-hmm. Roy Gonzalski. They were talking to Roy about some of the business challenges they were having and then Roy had suggested to them that I joined the team and so that's how I got involved. And so what's the size of the company at the moment and who does what? So it is a small team. There are less than 10 people and basically everybody except myself is a qualified engineer. (laughs) So we have David as the CEO, myself, business operations here in Australia. We also have an equivalent of myself, who's based in Europe and another engineer over in Europe as well as two other engineers that work on our team. So everybody basically in the business is an engineer. Tell me a little bit more, please, about the drivetrains you're developing to retrofit to small aircraft. What sort of technical problems are being addressed? What are some of the things that give you guys headaches? Tell me about, uh, yeah, what you're working on now, please. Uh, So from a technical perspective in terms of what's keeping us up at night, I mean, right now we're building out our minimum viable product, so there's some small technical challenges that we have to go through from there, but that is only to be tested on the ground and it's a smaller scale prototype, essentially. And some of the larger technical challenges that we are really focused on is we want to utilise off-the-shelf products where possible to build out our electric propulsion system. 
So that is, you know, building the technical and the electrical processes around the electric propulsion system configuration and architecture. So the cooling system elements, the power source components. Our intention is not to build a powertrain, but there are certain elements that we really want to own within that process. So some of the customizations that's required so and the IP we want to own. So for example, like the housing of the battery packs, we'd want to own certain elements of that. But the internal materials, nope, we want to have multiple suppliers that can provide us with those elements to wait and see where the real winners are going to be in the technology in the future. I'd like to learn a little bit more now about your new role as founder in residence, a thing that was announced through the week. Congratulations on that. Tell me what you'll be doing there, please. Thank you very much. It's an exciting time. So founder and resident at Swinburne University of Technology. I'll be working closely with the AirHub team. So that is the team that works on their aerospace. So they've got a couple of projects in hydrogen at the moment, actually, which is very interesting and very aligned with our priorities as well. But the reason that we came together is around the technology and the knowledge transfer. So all of the R&D work that Swinburne University are doing, we are looking to collaborate and I guess funnel that information and the knowledge and the know-how into Dovetail and commercialize it there. I think what we're starting to see from a lot of research centers is the R&D aspects really be translated back into industry, right, and start to deliver on some commercial activities and outcomes. And they have a priority, Swinburne have a priority to lead the aerospace technology industry here in Australia. Mm -hmm. And so that's why together we decided to work on some of the cutting edge technology that we're doing here at Dovetail. So it's very exciting. They're actually involved in our small prototype that we're currently building at the moment as well. Yeah. Is the, yeah. the, the prototype uh, the CRCP-sponsored uh, work or is that something No, else? so the CRCP is a separate project that we're working on. Excuse me. It is very exciting, the CRCP project. So that's a $3 million grant that we were awarded and that goes towards our larger goal of certifying our very first product. So it's a $12.8 million project in total and thankfully the government has provided $3 million of that and that's to fly and certify a Cessna caravan. Tell me a little bit more, please, about certification. You're going for supplementary type certification for battery and then for hydrogen mm-hmm. fuel aircraft. Tell me uh, about the timeline for both of those and what's involved. So our short-term goal right now is the prototype, so spinning that propeller by the end of the month, this month, so February 2023. Mm-hmm. From there, a year from now, we want to have the first flight of a battery-powered aircraft. That'll be working with Sydney Seaplanes, which is amazing. And shortly following that is our first hydrogen flight, which will be a King aircraft. And then within three years, and that's with the CRCP grant certifying our first product. So that'll be an e-caravan in 2025. So we're working on battery power first and getting that certified and then following on from that hydrogen. And the reason that we've chosen that particular approach is because There are battery standards already developed now for aviation, but there isn't anything yet for hydrogen, and that's probably going to take longer. And whilst we see that hydrogen is going to be the clear winner in the future, in the short term, we want to get to market as quickly as possible, and we'll be utilising the battery technology anyway in the hydrogen aspect 
So it just makes sense for us to get that battery-powered aircraft certified first and there's customers out there that are really interested in converting now as well because when you convert from combustion to electric, you have a 40% cost reduction and a three times longer motor life as well. So it's significant. You'll revolutionise the aviation industry as we currently see it. And that's what we've been reading about. NASA published a study and said, if you can reduce operating costs by 40%, you will revolutionise the industry. Right. Could you tell me a little bit more about certification? I've never heard it described as quick and simple. Um, (laughs) What does it involve? Will it be in Australia? And are you working with CASA on it? We've had preliminary conversations with CASA. I will say there has already been an electric aircraft certified by CASA, the Pipistrel, and yep. they're flying around. It's in a different category. It's a small training aircraft, but mm-hmm. that's a great start. The good thing about getting certification here in Australia is there aren't many electric aviation applications here with CASA, unlike some of the other countries like Yasa, right? So our main motor supplier that we have a relationship with, Magniax, their motor is being certified by the FAA and they're the only electric motor in the world on track to get certified first and mm-hmm. that we know of. At least they have a three-year motor around them. So they're being certified by the FAA in the US and there's a bilateral agreement here with CASA. So our understanding with the conversations that we've had so far is that a lot of that work will be reduced that we need to do yeah, because nice. they will take that certification as accepted, and then there's the additional work that we'll need to do around some of the other components that we're integrating into our electric propulsion system. But it won't be as onerous as having to go and get a whole brand new electric aircraft certified. And there's obviously going to be higher standards because we have to build trust in the industry and it's, you know, an unknown. And so we will work to do the additional testing and validations that are required, but we're very excited. Right. Your company description mentions a, a long-term vision of a completely new regional aircraft. That's uh, obviously a different thing to what we're speaking about now. How uh, far off is that and what might it look like? Well, that that work came from Dante Aeronautical, right, when David initially had started the business. And so the way that we see it is we target the retrofit market. We start with the smaller aircraft. We scale up to the larger aircraft until we get to the 20-plus seater range. Once we're there and we're working on all the different elements of electrification and we have that electrification knowledge and processes from the integration aspects as well, in 2029, we'll be looking to transition from the retrofit market into the brand-new build phase. And so we'll have a lot of highly skilled engineers with very technical understanding that we can utilise for those projects as well. Indeed, all that retrofitting will will allow you to build up some pretty decent aerospace engineering muscle on the team. Absolutely. And the other thing is, by then, by 2029, you'll start to see clear technology winners as well for net zero emissions. So there'll be a lot clearer technology pathway as well. Speaking of net zero emissions, obviously, airline companies and others are very interested in emissions-free transport. And if we're going to do that with green hydrogen, we're going to need a lot of green hydrogen, which is currently very expensive. What's your perspective on how the market is going to develop? What do you see happening? What are your predictions if you feel comfortable making them, etc.? I mean, you touched on a great point there, right? And it is very expensive. It's a lot more expensive than blue or grey hydrogen. And I suppose there's an assumption that there'll be an uptake 
in supply. So there really needs to be pressure from government for net zero emissions to increase that industrial demand because the industrial market, they're the largest consumer, right? And they're very cost sensitive. But not only that, I think we also need to improve our storage requirements. So there's lots of R&D that needs to be completed around that element, especially from an aerospace perspective considering that we have weight restrictions. And I think also the other thing that we need to see in terms of maturity is the verification that it truly is green. So, you know, the guarantee about the origin of where it's truly come from. And then also there's work that needs to be done around the energy losses because when you are, I suppose, moving the hydrogen from every point of the supply chain, there's losses that come with that. And so we need to improve and innovate through the R&D of those activities. And then in the future, the digital aspects, you know, we'll start to see some of the the data monitoring and the controls to improve the analytics. So think about like your IoT devices with the intelligent alarms and remote monitoring. That will start to be a thing of the future. And I know there are some industries that utilise that, but I think there's investment that needs to happen in Australia on that side. What what can be done by state and federal governments to increase the prospects of the green aviation industry, in your opinion? I mean, it would be great to see some support around the the policies that they're providing. Transport is a focus area for nil emissions, but they don't have any solution in aviation right now for nil emissions, and we're providing one here. Unfortunately, when we have previously approached the government, and I'm sure we're not the only one, there's been not too many funding opportunities or bodies right now. It's mainly focused on road transport, but not so much aviation. And aviation is one of the hardest areas to abate. And they're basically, well, it feels like they're ignoring it, hoping that the industry will come up with a solution. And in fact, aviation impacts the environment three times worse because it's higher up in the atmosphere as well. So it would be great to see some investment. Sure. Uh, We'll wait and see. A recurring question on this series is, what is an issue in manufacturing that is not getting the attention it deserves from the press, from politicians or the public? I mean, personally, I think it's around sovereign capability especially from the manufacturing perspective. And in my opinion, if we run out of fuel tomorrow, and we have we have absolutely no way to power our athlete. It's completely grounded, and that's an issue. Yeah, we don't and, have much in the way of refining here, um, but please go on. I didn't mean to cut you off. But not only that, it's also there's a lot of other items, right? And when I think about it from an electric aviation perspective, there's a lot of those key elements that we do not manufacture here in-house, and I think COVID, we really started to see some of the impacts around the logistical supply chain issues that we were having. And I think sovereign capability needs to really be considered from a manufacturing perspective and some of those items that we're going to need in the future. Certainly. I mean, everyone cared about sovereign capability in in 2020 for a little while. And I think that perhaps they've gotten sovereign capability fatigue out there in a lot of places. It's something, you know, that felt good to say for a while. And it was Mm -hmm. like a motherhood statement. But I think that perhaps we've uh, lost focus. And that's just just my five cents. I agree. That's about everything we have time for, but I'd like to know if there's anything you'd like to make as a final comment or perhaps something to plug before I leave you alone. Absolutely. Check out our website, www.dovetail.aero, short 
or aerospace mm-hmm. to follow our progress and also follow us and give us a like on LinkedIn. That's Dovetail Electric Aviation on LinkedIn and follow our journey. Rachel, it's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you very much for joining us on AU Manufacturing Conversations. Thank you so much for having me, Brent. Really appreciate it. 